0: Welcome to Unwrapped, a podcast where we pull back the conversation on coffee and chocolate. Sunita from the Chocolate Garage and Brian from Abandoned Coffee in Quills Coffee.
1: So good morning, and it sounds like you're in Seattle, ready to yes compete.
0: Right. So do you? And so I've 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 kind of mentioned that a little bit to you over the last couple of weeks, but I don't know if you're just kind of in the dark about what it is that I'm doing or not.
1: A little bit in the dark, although I have been noticing through my Instagram, uh, some folks I follow that there's, this is the, is this the RICO Symposium that you're at?
0: So so RICO Symposium is happening right before the event that I'm going to, which there's it's kind of a couple of events in one. So it's gener, the General um, Specialty Coffee Association, which was formerly the Specialty Coffee Association of America, but it joined with the Specialty Coffee Association of Europe. And now it's just. Specialty Coffee Association, they have this Specialty Coffee Global Expo. So it's just this big coffee event. And so a lot of roasters are there and producers are there. Farmers are there and brands are there releasing new things. And then it's also where they host the U.S. Coffee Champs events. So they host regional events for a number of things, cup tasters and what else? The uh, United States Barista Championship and the United States Brewers Championship. So the Barista Championship is a, a competition where you, you're you allotted so much time and you have to provide an espresso course and a signature beverage and provide a routine and you have tech judges and uh, sensory judges. And then Brewers is a little less uh, intricate or talked about and it's it's it, it's scored based on sort of a cupping sheet form and you also give a presentation in a certain amount of time per brewing up uh, three separate coffees for, or one coffee three separate times for the individual judges. And so um, at Quills, we had uh, a barista who was in the barista competition, Hannah, and then I was in brewers competition and we both uh, went through with the regionals to compete here in Seattle during the expo for the US. So that's what we're both here to try and do.
1: Very good. And so um, you are going to be doing that this afternoon or part of it, the the three different um, versions of the one coffee. And then I think you had mentioned that tomorrow there's something else where you get a coffee that's just a surprise and you get to do your best with it.
0: Right, tomorrow tomorrow morning will be where I do the open service, which is where I'll serve the judges, the coffee that I'm bringing. And then on Saturday is when I'll do my compulsory, which is where everybody kind of they get the same coffee and no one knows what it is. And they only have X amount of time to to figure it out however they want to and then present that to the judges. And they're scored that way. So it kind of levels the playing field for all competitors, because a lot of times for this competition, you'll have people who because the for Brewers Comp specific specifically, it's done. The points are basically done on a, according to a cupping sheet. So ideally, the best coffees will score the best. And so this sort of helps eliminate that for somebody who brings, let's say, just this award-winning, incredibly expensive coffee that is sure to score incredibly well. So, yeah. And then the, the top six for brewers over Friday and Saturday... They'll compete again on Sunday, and one of those will be the winner. And whoever wins that will go to Budapest to compete for Worlds. And then I forget where Barista goes. I think they might be in Barcelona, Um, whoever wins that. So that's all taking place this weekend.
1: Two not-so-shabby cities to get to go visit and compete in.
0: Yeah. I'm glad I got my passport renewed. So.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to, I was just looking at an Instagram story um, and I was seeing some of what was going on at RICO Rico's symposium. Um, and um, I saw this huge uh, auditorium filled with folks who were all wearing little black uh, masks so that they couldn't see, it was truly blind. And then they had something and I, there was just little snippets. So it seemed like they were maybe about to smell and taste an oil, I'm not sure what it was, but it was so interesting to see um, You know, I do tastings all the time and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, like when I look at a tasting like that where it's blind and someone's leading, I'm thinking about all the work involved to prepare, you know, the whole audience to do that. And it really affects Mm -hmm. how you run a tasting is thinking about the pragmatics of getting it done. And I was imagining that down the line, I can imagine um, chocolate and, you know, I can imagine chocolate having these kinds of much more elaborate, very well attended, more mainstream um, sort of conferences where we do these kinds of really sophisticated things you know where we're sort of calibrating and doing it totally blind it was it was interesting to, to fast forward and think about where chocolate is gonna go
0: right and that's what's interesting about uh, cup tasters which I'm not a part of but they have eight samples and they're the earth eight I guess eight stations whatever you want to call it eight sections and there's three cups per section and one of them doesn't have a defect and the other two do for each eight of them. And so the cup tasters go through and they are trying to get as many correct out of the eight, right? As well as in the fastest time. So that's kind of interesting. And I, I mean, that's something I could specifically see with with chocolate because what we've talked about before, It some people might mask defects or embrace them, but some of that's still there. And some folks, because of it being embraced or masked, it's maybe it is more or less easy for them to detect that compared to samples that do not have that does that make sense
1: yeah it's it's interesting just to hear you know the language you're using i feel like there's i look forward to a day where it is agreed upon and folks in the industry understand that there are objective flaws you know at this point i feel almost like so many flaws are just sort of seen as you know oh interesting diversity you know this 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 reminds me of this or i enjoy it therefore it's good and so I'm kind of looking forward to um, having industry consensus and, and beyond industry where people recognize like this is actually a problem in cacao and um, we want to strive to not have this in our chocolate.
0: And we're, but we're also kind of in a weird culture if you think about it for this. You know, we have, I don't know if you're a beer drinker, but I know a lot of my friends who are into sours and just what are like funky beers and funky natural wines, right? And so there's, there's qualities to them that are embraced because they're either ex- experimental or because they're particular strains of things that are maybe more or less, um, manipulated in a negative way right it's 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 original it's unfiltered or something but it they share a lot of similarities with things that we consider an averse so we're kind of in a culture where those things are celebrated in any way and that makes it a little bit more difficult I would think
1: yeah no it absolutely does it's um it's interesting too I remember uh, at some point I think it was Greg d'lessandre was saying from dandelion that when they opened their shop in Tokyo, that they have adapted, you know, the kinds of flavor profiles in the chocolate that they're selling in Japan, because there's very different tastes there. You know, there's um, different foods and different sort of, I actually think in general, I was going to say, when I notice people coming into the chocolate garage who are either from other countries or have grown up with very different food traditions and they taste chocolate, I find in general, this is like a mass generalization, but you know, when you've had access to more range of flavor in your, in your, in the cuisine that you've grown up with, and I would say that maybe the United States, I mean, traditional American food, whatever that means, like, um, that doesn't involve lots of different kinds of influences from all over the world has less range than something like, I'm going to throw out Indian food, you know, where there's like, absolutely curry is a mix of like 12 different spices, freshly toasted and ground, and, you know, brought together and blended. And so and that's the case in actually a lot of asian cuisines there's all this complexity and this you know thousands of years of, of learning how to put flavors together and also you know to some extent um, medicinal properties of these different spices together and make a food that that really works and so um it's interesting because in general i feel like people who come in who've been raised in different food traditions will come in the first time and maybe we're tasting four or five different chocolates i remember this one guy in particular and i didn't tell him anything about the chocolates he tasted them all and one of them that we were tasting at that time, this a few years ago, was the Rogue Jamaica. And it was the cleanest. I mean, the cacao was beautiful and Colin did a great job with this bar. And he came to me and he said, oh, you know, the Jamaica bar, that one is amazing. It has all this stuff going on. And it was sometimes bars that are the cleanest and have like the most delicious flavors um, are more nuanced and they're actually harder to access. And so if your palate isn't used to it, you that just sort of goes over your head and you don't even notice. Um, and so it was interesting for him to say, this is the best bar of the lot I think you know I like it the best and I was like wow it is actually <laughs> I think objectively the best bar of the five we have out today um, and for a newbie to walk in and to experience that food in that way was really interesting
0: when I was spent time in Dallas I got to meet up with Scott from Dallas Foods several times and that was one thing that kind of has already always stuck with me as as we talked about chocolate it was he had give uh, gifted me one of the Rogue Porcelana bars. And it was at that, I mean, at that time, it was not able to, he doesn't make it anymore. So it was not attainable. And when I first, he he was talking about how it's the most aromatic chocolate he's ever had. And it's just an incredible, incredible bar. And I think it it shocked me at first when I had it, because to me, it didn't wow me like another chocolate would. And so I was just kind of curious as to what, makes it so great and a lot of times you think about greatness in terms of flavor or lots of it or more so about what something does have instead of what he said is what it doesn't have right to have a bar that's in a high percentage or an 80 percent without bitterness or being so clean and I would think that some people who maybe are more accustomed to molays or something, you know, they could come in and try chocolate and may have a better appreciation for dark chocolates or higher quality, well done chocolates, because they don't have, they might be used to a chocolate without as much sweetness as maybe like a lot of these 70% bars. Now I feel like the more t- I go to 70% bars and I, I'm nothing wrong with them. I eat them all the time, but they, it's it's kind of become my borderline of, this is a lot of sugar for a dark
1: chocolate. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I think that's one of the challenges or one of the observations I've had with the American market is that I think that sadly, you know, we our food is so industrialized here and so dumbed down and so, you know, um, I, I mean mass-produced food. It's so uh, perfectioned to, I don't know if that's a word, It's 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 been manipulated to... Hit all those things in our mouths, like the sweet and the salty and the fatty, um, in a way that makes us want to continue eating and isn't too complex in flavors because it, you know, we don't feel sated and we continue to eat when there isn't too much complexity of flavor. And so I almost feel like a lot of the American craft chocolates, like a lot of the new makers, are making these really like aggressive the punch in your face. I actually remember I think Cam of Dandelion said that once, like, you know, chocolate being like so flavorful and so different from a Hershey's or what we've traditionally been eating in the United States that it's like almost aggressive. And um, I think you know that, that certainly knocks people into, oh my God, I didn't even know chocolate could have all these flavors. And it wakes people up and it gets their attention. But I think what's lost in there is then you have these really nuanced bars that are like clean, beautiful cacao and have so much stuff going on. And they, they're not as remarkable in a sense as the really aggressive punch in your face kind of bars. Um, and that's that's too bad. And I feel that um, in part because there's so many m- new makers on the market who are still like working out all the different things you can learn forever on how to make chocolate and how to you know, work a bean that may have this, that, and the other that's a little out of balance. And how do you end that, how do you fix that so the end bar is is, um, is, is interesting and, and well-developed because there's so many new folks in and there's so little great cacao, there's much more flawed cacao than there is not flawed cacao we have so many bars on the market that are in that aggressive range and sometimes it's aggressive and flawed and sometimes it's just aggressive um, which you know depending on who you are you'd think that aggressive is flawed and that you want to like round out the acidity and get distinct fruits rather than just have it be like a you know a punch in the face Um, i actually used to use a bar that i felt sort of encapsulated so many defects so many things that can go wrong in chocolate it was a great teaching bar and i didn't reveal what bar it was but i used it at tastings and i would describe you know we're going to taste four different dark chocolates um these are you know this is what they look like look like in terms of like you know this percent i would actually reveal all the other bars and i would say this is what you're going to taste in this bar you know this kind of you know madagascar tends to be very bright and fruity and citrusy and you know whatever so I would describe the four bars and then they would taste the four bars blind and i wouldn't reveal what the fourth bad bar was but i would tell them you know when you first smell it you're gonna get these off notes it was actually an origin from Papua New Guinea um, when there was still um, a lot of smokiness like smoke contamination from drying and um, so I'd describe it and I'd be like oh it's gonna be smoky on the nose and then when you start to put it in your mouth it's not gonna melt as easily you're gonna notice it's grainy and I would describe all these different things and and you know and the the flavor descriptions were you know ashtray once it's in your mouth like it totally is gonna be like an unpleasant burnt smoky kind of flavor And then vinegar bomb is how I described it, you know, where it's like aggressive acidity. It really feels like vinegar more than it does distinct fruits and then super astringent at the end. And everyone was able to pick out this bar. Um, But it was it was interesting to show people like how many things can go wrong. And this was a bar that was sold around the same price as the other bars that I was featuring. This was craft chocolate, two ingredients, and um, it was a great teaching tool. And people would always want to know what bar it was. And I would say, even if I were to tell you what the brand is, the point is that so many bars right now have these problems with it and so i want you to walk away having learned what are you looking for texture wise and and what is you know contrast this bar to the other ones you tasted and see how much more gentle and delicious and beautiful mouthfeel it was and so it was really teaching people to to notice the flaws um and people were able to do it but the problem is we almost never eat four bars at a time um in our normal lives especially if you buy if you go and you take a risk and craft chocolate and buy a few bars, like typically you'd open one at a time and just taste it and get through it and then move on to the next one. And so it's really interesting to put people in a situation where they're comparing like thoughtfully in that moment across multiple bars.
0: Right. And I really enjoy too, this is something that I see happening a lot or at least a lot more in regards to coffee that I enjoy when I see it in chocolate are makers who offer multiple percentages of the same cacao. And I don't really see anyone who offers them packaged together necessarily, or maybe in a smaller variety. I, I, Again, it's a coffee thing. I feel like I see people with little smaller sets, and maybe it's just not as profitable to do with the batch size that you have to do for bars. But I really find it interesting to really try to understand the effects of well, the effects of different levels of sugar or cocoa butter, but also just to understand what comes from the cacao itself in terms of flavor, those characteristics. Like if you could try 100% or 80% or 70% or a combination of all of those, uh, it's I find that really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, I remember at some point um, asking uh, Patrick Chocolate, who used to do a whole different – he did a 67 Madagascar, a 70 – And then a 75 maybe not a 70 but maybe the 70 is the inimitable with the nibs but at least you had the 67 and the 75 and i remember that it kind of blew my mind this was probably like five six years ago when i realized that it's not just a question of sugar he actually is putting different amounts of sugar obviously in those two different bars but to have it be the best bar it can be at 67 versus 75 he's doing a totally different roast you know he's possibly i don't remember talking to him about this but conching it differently you know so he's actually um, specifically, trying to bring out the same cacao in different ways at different percentages. So it's not just this one's going to be more sweet, but everything else is mostly going to be the same. Um, That's interesting. Totally different style based on the percentage, right? That's kind of cool. I mean, I hadn't initially thought that. I just was like, oh, you roasted and you add more sugar. <laughs> well, because I
0: think it probably goes both ways. I imagine there are people who just add. I mean, maybe not. Maybe maybe that actually would be interesting if there are any makers who are listening in on this. I'd love. To to hear back from them about how they would approach something like that. I know, like, um, Cultura, I have their Haiti, what, eighty. I think they have it in several ways. I think I have a 70% and 85%, and I, I'd be curious to know what they do, too. That's that's interesting. I'd never really thought about that. I would assume that it would just be varying amounts of sugar, but, yeah, that it makes a lot of sense that you'd probably want the profile to be the best that it can be. I don't know why I didn't yeah. think about that.
1: Well, you know, and I think it also – uh, I think that that requires a fairly sophisticated understanding of what your machines are able to do, and when you roast something, what your end result is going to be. I I always think of um, talking to Colin uh, about uh, his chocolate process, and at some point he, you know, I'm like, well, tell me how like how does this work? How do you do it? How do you know when it's roasted? Like, what's your what's your style? And he's like, well, you know, and then he says to me like, well, basically, you know, I just I I roast until. This time, like if it smells really, really good, then I've probably gone too far because I'm starting to smell all these, you know, whatever he said, something like that. And then he said, um, you know, I roast it until it gets right before the point where, you know, something happens. I don't remember what he did. he understood clearly what he was talking about. And he's like, and then I basically think like once I've ground this and I've conched it for for you know for a couple of days and um, and then I let it age out that I I, I know that that's when I need to stop roasting is when I know that once I've done all those other steps it's going to taste like this and I was like Colin you realize that that is an impossible thing like you that's a completely experienced thing for you you can't even like you know it but you can't even describe what those variables are because the notion of being able to stop a roast at a point where you know that you then will apply five more complex steps (laughs) to that bar and know that after it's aged out for a bit it's gonna be delicious like it kind of blew my mind that 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 he sort of was like, "Oh, you know, it's kind of we got to do this. It's pretty straightforward." I'm like, "Dude, that is not straightforward at all." And I I was trying to like point out to him that the you know, how much understanding, experience, and knowledge he has within him to be able to make that call on a roast, knowing what typically happens with the next many steps. And I I don't think that most of the newer makers um and I think obviously wherever you're at in terms of making like you've learned so much that you're focused on how much you've learned but you don't realize that in the next two years you're going to even know more and i think it's important to understand and respect that you know if you're five years in like someone who's 10 years in if they've been you know learning and applying and and getting better like they've learned even more about so many different steps um than than a new maker might know now and so i don't know i think like everything in life having some humility about um, what will what you're going to understand in the future, and that you're you're really not there yet, like in general that'd be in a, life.
0: That'd be a cool competition too, though. If it doesn't exist, is for makers to all get the same cacao and then all turn out a bar with it. Is there something yeah,
1: well, like that? Yeah. Well, so I think um, Dandelion just started an effort to to start doing that. I think they're calling it the Makers Cup, where. Um, and they're also trying to make it so that the mold is the same across all makers. So it's genuinely okay. blind and you don't know you can't, because you can, of, of course, um, even if you close your eyes and you get samples like at the good food awards, it's a blind tasting in quotes, but everyone's mold is different. So when I used to judge for many years, I'd put it in my mouth and I'd, I can't help but be like, Oh, well, this is definitely not the thickness of a rogue or whatever. Like it isn't truly blind. And especially if you're familiar with the bars, it's very easy to know, you know, who it, who it is, but so they're trying to do that. I think they did their first one this past January. Um, and I think makers are themselves um, uh, judging. And so they're judging each other's stuff in a blind way and commenting on it. And I believe it was the same bean, which is really kind of neat because I think there's an opportunity there for makers to really learn from each other and and be super objective and kind of critical of their own bar, um, you know, and see what other folks have done with it. So. I think they did their first one and there may be something happening this summer in New York at the other, you know, the other fancy food show, Um, but I'm not sure.
0: That'd be awesome. I'd like to attend that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, this is one of the things that, you know, on a personal level, as I've been trying to, like, figure out how do we improve the Good Food Awards and each year make it a little better in terms of addressing some of the problems and how do you balance that with, you know, realistic time constraints and, you know, volunteer position it's it's an interesting challenge because of course everyone having the same mold mold would be amazing right because then you'd actually have um, you'd actually have a truly a more blind competition actually a blind competition Um, but the logistics behind that you know if you have 150 samples coming in and each person so like 50 or 60 different makers that are submitting their chocolate um, you either have to provide the mold I think what Oh, there's actually, now it's ringing a bell that I feel like there's one of the organizations that's trying to switch to all using the same mold and you just make it part of the subscription, you know, or the entry fee is that you have to buy this mold and you specify it and it's just a basic mold from Tomrick and everyone has to order it. And it's just part of what you have to do if you want to compete. Um, We thought about that and and really, really want to do it. But there were a few things that were higher up on the list that were more important. So it still remains not blind, but ideally you make it blind
0: right what's your um, what's your involvement with good food awards
1: oh so um good food awards is a is a a cross-country i guess national is the word um competition for all types of good foods like foods that are being made um, in small ways with certain criteria about how things are sourced and one of the categories is chocolate and there's also confections and basically there's um there's a couple of us co-chairs who are running the chocolate category so we organize we organize the judging we organize you know who's on the committee that's going to help us set things up and um, make sure the criteria are respected do the due diligence around when people submit are they you know do they meet all the criteria that are put forth um, in terms of product being on the market as well as how they're sourcing and that they meet all the ethical sort of criteria that good food awards has chosen so carla martin and of, of fine cacao and chocolate institute myself and chloe Um, I'm the local one. So we three have been working on it now for the past couple of years, and it's a three-year term. So this will be our final year Um, this fall will be the the judging. And uh, January is when the awards are given out.
0: Sure. I remember Colin talking a little bit about, and maybe you could speak to this. It's, It's just something that popped in my head in regards to what was something that was implemented for this last year about a bar that has previously won or previously won the last two years, I forget what it was, uh, not being able to be resubmitted. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think, oh gosh. And I, I don't remember right now cause I think it might've been a new, it was something that the good food awards probably put forth that I think that you can't, I don't remember. <laughs> that's, that's bad. <laughs> Since I'm running the show that's okay. with Carla and Chloe, but I think there's the idea is that you can't just keep repeating and sending in the same bar to keep winning, you know, and have it be a ringer. Um, and I think there may be a period of time, um, after which you can resubmit it. and certainly the good food award stickers, I believe, do have a year on them. Um, so you can, you know, put the sticker on, but you can't be like just sending in the same one all the time. I wonder, I think that I can't remember Colin didn't sadly didn't um, send in chocolate last year to compete. Um, this is one of the things, actually, this is sort of deviating a little and um, going to a new topic, but the notion of like it's so important to know if you if if you look at who won last year, wouldn't it be nice to know who submitted? And, and, you know, obviously by de- that definition, who didn't? Um, it's one of right. the things I think that's really important. Um, and, you know, there's it's not that the Good Food Awards is averse to doing that, I don't think. Um, but it's just like every little thing that you do like that is complicated and ends up costing, you know, money and time and resources to put all that information out there and becomes a pretty dense website. But it's one of the things I think is kind of important um, and really a measure of, um, well, who your competitors are and a measure of how uh, valuable and Um, uh, what's the word? Yeah, how valuable the award is. The award system as well as the award is to see who you're competing against um, when you win.
0: Yeah, I think that was his comment too, is he, he was asking why that was in place. And I think the response to him was so that other makers have a chance to win. And I think his retort was, why don't you encourage them to make better chocolate if they can't beat out the other ones? And I just thought that was... It, it made a lot of sense. I don't recall exactly what the situation is with coffee. And I guess I could understand. But I mean, if a bar continuously wins, I, I would feel like it would deserve that and would push others to strive to be better than that. Would it? You, know, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's just my thought. Too. No,
1: I agree. I agree with you. I think that, you know, why not if you're if each year, because every year, depending on the harvest you have, you have slightly different beans. And if you're just killing it with a Madagascar and and it's like your best bar, why not have it continue to win award after award every, you know, every year? I, I agree. I actually, see, this is one of the challenges I think with award systems is that, you know, they, to some extent, like, and I don't mean this about the Good Food Awards. Like, I think that each different award system has its challenges, inherent challenges, and as an award system, you, you also need to grow your brand, right? Like for your brand to have power, you need to grow it. And so I think that, and again, I'm, I'm really talking about all awards at this point, there's this, this fine line that award systems have to walk where, you know, they have, they have whatever it is at heart that they're trying to judge for. And in the case of the good food awards, it's, it's quality, but also if you're using, you know, um, milk in your chocolate that is not fitting the criteria that they're asking that you think about when you source this milk, then you can't, you're not even going to be considered to win, right? So there's a component of being responsible in how you're sourcing for the food in general, the whole, all the categories. Um, And other um, award systems are actually just like, this is all about quality. Is this, is this knocking out of the park in terms of quality? But one of the problems is that You know any of these kinds of award systems to gain traction and to have a stand you know a status within whatever the local context is needs to grow their brand and needs to make political decisions and um i think that in the sense it makes sense if you're trying to grow your brand and your organization for you to have more makers and you know more makers winning and more makers applying certainly winning um because then you you know if People are putting stickers on their bars and they're all over the country or all over the world if you're an international organization. And that is a promotion of your brand, right? And so it brings more attention and it brings you a better functioning system and more revenue and all of that, right? So it gets really difficult when you get into it. Like how do you create a fair system um, that balances out all these needs? But I would agree um, with, with what Colin said, why not? Why can't you just you know, it's a new bar. It's not like you're taking what you made last year and submitting it again. You actually have made a new bar with new knowledge, new understanding, possibly slightly different beans. And so if you're still making a, a truly outstanding bar, why not award, you know, again?
0: Right. It's 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 tricky. I see the Good Food Award side to that and its, been, it's benefit for its sake. But I also feel like it slightly um, washes out the the idea of winning at that point but uh and especially there's so many winners there's a ton of winners i would feel like i mean i understand it's taking a slot out of x amount of entries but you're not just giving away one award you're, i mean there's what 20 25 winners so
1: yeah anyway yeah, i think yeah i think it's um you know what's been interesting for me and a really interesting learning experience and and having and running my own business i understand this as well it's like oftentimes you, there's so many things that you're trying to accomplish, you have to compromise in different areas, you know? And I feel like I understand when the Good Food Awards takes a particular stand or they have a particular way that they want to judge or tally the results or respect different regions and how those regions are, you know, how those foods are being uh, rated within regions. And, and that's kind of a more complicated topic around how chocolate gets judged and how that's worked for the past few years. Um, So there's specific things that happen differently depending on the food category sometimes, but, you know, from the point of view of the Good Food Awards, the point is to bring healthy, thoughtful, good food to the forefront and get people thinking about who are the crafters of that food and um, start sourcing locally and eating, you know, delicious pickles that have wonderful probiotics in it that are using carrots from Whatever state you know where they're they're being made in, and so from a point of view of building a food movement and growing, you know, um, cultivating makers who get valued and honored and applauded for the work that they're doing in wh- whichever state they're from, where they may not get a lot of intrinsic like recognition. In California making craft food is like you know everyone's digging it and you know people are convinced, but in a lot of other parts of the country. That's not the case. And so being able to honor folks who are doing that in all these different states so that we have good food in the whole country, not just on the coasts, um, I get it. You know, like that's a big picture vision where you are pushing to revolutionize the way we appreciate food change and move away from the industrial sort of food in quotes that we're eating to really healthy, delicious stuff that actually supports small local business. And if that's your goal, then it absolutely makes sense. And that is, I think, the larger goal of the Good Food Awards, which is an honorable goal, then, you know, growing your categories by one every year and adding on a new category every year. Fish was the last one that was added on. Um, totally makes sense. And yet, you know, on another on another level, you think, well, if you keep growing like that every year, like and you can't, you know, and you still have the same number of staff or whatever, like, you know, I'm I'm sort of like just throwing these ideas out there like, you want to grow and it's really good and it's important for your overall movement and then how does it strain you further like you know should you add one every year or should you try to like you know uh, hunker down for a bit and really try to improve and make stuff really roll well before growing i mean these are difficult decisions that i don't have access to in terms of how folks are, are deciding these things but you know arguably revolutionizing the way we're eating food and the kind of food we're eating in the united states I can understand gripping onto that and being that is the goal. And so we need to make compromises in these other areas. Um, I totally applaud that and get it. And I think Sarah um, of the Good Food Awards executive director is amazing and inspiring and has really done an amazing job in general for food. And, um, you know, and I have different thoughts about like specifically my obsession with chocolate is making sure that quality is absolutely there. And the supply chain matters to me, too. So, you know, that part the Good Food Awards addresses but I wish, like for me, I would like to obsess even more about quality and I would like to have more time and more judges and do it over multiple days so that palate fatigue is not an issue, you know? And, you know, at the same time, I understand that two extra days is a huge amount of money and resources that isn't necessarily there to host, you know, all of these different categories. And so, you know, I I try to be, understanding that i can't get everything i want for chocolate (laughs) because that's the reality of life right like this is a larger organization that is doing amazing work and there have to be compromises right i can i can obsess about chocolate in my own business (laughs) i can decide on whatever rules i want in terms of you know judging chocolate in the sense of curation right and what i bring in but you know, and that has its downside as well. if i if I was more pragmatic about selling what sells, you know, and buying stuff you know, to sell at the chocolate garage that moves, um, you know, it's a different model than what I have. i'm I'm really um, I really want it to be what I feel is aligned with my values. And so I make those decisions and choices to maybe forego bringing in more revenue just because it's not in line with what I want to build. and so. I I, it's a compromise and I sacrifice some revenue, but I feel good about, you know, I feel like I need to hang on to these ideas because in the long term, that's what's important to me. Um, So, you know, I mean, somebody else would look at that and be like, that's really dumb. (laughs) You need to make more money, you know, like this is ridiculous. Um, But whatever. I guess that's the nice thing about having your own business is you get to decide where you'd like to suffer.
0: (laughs) Right. Gosh.
1: Oh. Yeah, Um, I had so I had a little so I I was thinking, you know, yesterday I was at um, UC uh, Berkeley and I spoke to a group, a class of graduate students in engineering who were taking this class on sustainable design. And it was really interesting. Um, I was thinking it would be what we talk about today. But of course, we just meandered wherever. um, And this is really great. Um, It's been really great to talk about what we talked about. Um, But, you know, what I do at the Chocolate Garage and the choices I make um i basically uh with this group decided instead of going in and talking so the reason they asked me to come speak is the idea of designing an experience that you know the chocolate garage is an experience it's a different retail experience and um how do you design something like that to serve the purposes that you have decided are important and and have a viable business and so what i ended up doing was sort of throwing at them instead of saying hey you know what this is what i did this is what i thought was important and this is what has happened over the past seven years Um, since we opened the chocolate garage instead of doing that i said hey this was the problem i was facing you know when i came into the, the industry like 13 years ago i wanted to try to figure out how to wake people up to quality and the ugly supply chain and give them positive alternatives and so i basically presented them with the conundrum and said how do you take what was a market that was basically spending a buck or two um or three on chocolate and have folks um value chocolate in a totally different way this new category of chocolate and it was really interesting because before posing them that problem i did a little tasting and so they tasted a bunch of different chocolates that are like some of the best chocolates that they've certainly eaten ever just because you know we carry some of the best chocolates and so um like delicious ones that were just mind-blowing and really um illuminated like oh dark chocolate is not just dark chocolate i just tasted a madagascar versus a Um, and Ecuador and they were just unbelievably different. It was Camino Verde Ecuador. And so just opening their minds to that and then saying, hey, you know, like you guys just told me you spend about five to six to $7 on chocolate, never above 10, and these bars are all above 10. So the conundrum is, you know, how do you design something where you can share with people why or or convince people, persuade people that they want to spend $15 on this Patrick chocolate bar? how do you do that? How do you create an experience? What are the the attributes you try to feature? How do you do that? And it was really interesting um, to hear people's thoughts, um, uh, and then to see how much of what they suggested was uh, was is how we've designed the Chocolate Garage experience and and how people right um, come in and and are transformed. Hopefully, anyways, yeah. that was what so I was thinking we would talk about today because I know you haven't been to the Chocolate Garage and I know that also. Um, you know, we haven't really talked about um, happy chocolate um, and what that concept is. And one of the questions you'd written down was, you know, um, what do you do if it meets the ethical standards, but it's not that high quality? And so we haven't really gone it, gone into that. Um, but I don't know how much time we have left and if we want to touch on it or if we want to like punt that to next week or if you have final thoughts.
0: I say we just do that. I say we just do that our next talk.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, actually, you know what people can do if anyone's listening to our podcast (laughs) is just to sit with that question, you know, like subtract. You know, there's mainstream understanding now about craft chocolate. There's articles being published, you know, there's makers in most states at this point. So there's much more general knowledge. But if people could play the game of subtracting like seven or 10 years and thinking like, okay, if you know, if I were to try to take um, people's understanding of chocolate and expose them to something that is going to blow their minds, that is so different from what we've always thought of as chocolate. And I was going to have a brick and mortar whose purpose was to, you know, sell chocolate so that you could pay the bills, um, but transform people's idea and relationship with the product. And this could apply to any food, really. I think, how do you transform people's understanding and value the way they value food so that they happily are spending what you can buy at a Costco for half or a third of the price. How do you communicate the value, you know, in terms of, and whatever that value is, like quality, the supply chain transparency, seeing that if I buy this bar for 15, it means that the farmer in Camino Verde got a really good price versus my Hershey's bar where we know that folks in Cote d'Ivoire are making less than a dollar a day, you know, below extreme poverty. in, in many parts of the world that are really engaged in commodity cacao. Um, so like thinking about like, what, how do you, how do you do that? And, and in a sense, I feel like it, you know, and and coffee's a great example as well. I think it's taken a bit of a different path than chocolate. Um, but how do you do that and start, you know, Oh, I can't stop talking. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, Starbucks, Starbucks is so interesting because I feel like they really got people spending more money on coffee, but I feel like what they did was not create so much like a really high quality coffee as much as a culture and an experience and a and a place to be and this idea of a third space where you go and you 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 get this you know and there's a language you speak when you order right and you think that Starbucks was really brilliant in in creating this experience it really is an experience um so anyways that's some some food for thought to think about like how do you how do you um shift people's perceptions so that they're happily engaging in products that they would have not thought of spending that much money on, um, in the past. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, let's leave it there and, uh, good luck.
0: Thanks. I'm excited.
1: I'm excited to see. Will you be posting? Um, and how, how long, like, when do you get the results? How do you know how you've done?
0: Well, I don't know what they're going to do at this for regionals. They didn't. There was no. So barista, there's usually live scoring. So as people compete, their scores are shown uh, with brewers. There wasn't. And I don't necessarily know the reason why, but uh, it, and it might be that case because everyone has a different schedule between the next two days. Some people will be, doing, will be doing their compulsory tomorrow and some people will be doing their open and same with Saturday. And then those two scores are are averaged out. And then the top six go on to compete Sunday, but only they're open with the coffee that they brought. So I might not know until Saturday night. So I know that there's uscoffeechampionships.org. And on that, usually they stream, they live stream the baristas. I don't know about the brewers. I imagine somebody will either be on Quills or my personal feed or something streaming my performance. But I know I go on tomorrow morning at 1050 and that's Pacific time, um, so that's when I'm going to be doing my routine. I, hopefully, somebody videos it at all because I'd like to have it. I'm really, 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 really happy with with this routine. What I'm talking about with the coffee, and then just doing a lot of really interesting stuff with the coffee. Um, I don't know if I'll do well or not, but I'm I'm just really proud of it all, and it's really it's re- been really fascinating. So, and I'll say it because this won't air. Uh, beforehand, just for you to know. so we have we have this coffee in. it's great, it's beautiful. Um, and then i I worked with some guys who um, p- put mineral content, they, they build the mineral content for water, ideal for like brewing coffee. Uh, so they've done it in like a more consumer friendly capsule. So you just get some water. bloop, drop this in here. you got really nice brewable water. And I met with them to build a water formation uh, formulation, I should say whatever um, of of um, minerals that complemented my coffee. So I'm going in with a water that's sort of tailored to the coffee I'm using. But then as I was, as I was brewing the coffee as it is, it's supposed to be a hundred percent of one variety, which is called Typica. And just over the last couple of weeks, as I was looking at it, I've, I've been asking our roaster, I say, is this Typica? Is this hundred percent Typica? He's like, it's supposed to be. I'm like, there are some beans in here that are smaller than the rest. And so just the other day, last week, I got I got curious about the smaller beans compared to the others. So there's only about 7% of the the coffee that are the small beans, but I pulled a whole bunch of them out and I brewed only the small beans compared to only the large beans. And there is an enormous difference in flavor. So I so the roast of this week's batch, I I pulled out all of the small isolated from the large. And I'm going to, instead of brewing it in, let's say a general brew would have about 7%, I'm going to have a controlled... blend of the small beans to the large beans to get more of the profile that the small beans have than what you normally would get in a brew.
1: That's so cool. And it's
0: like, it's such a different coffee.
1: It's amazing. And also just like the idea of the water you're using and all of that. I mean, I know sugar is important in chocolate and what sugar you use and all that, but just the idea of tailoring the water to really bring out the best in the coffee beans. So neat.
0: So I think other people will be doing some things like that. Some people sift out the coffee, so they'll they'll sift out certain particle sizes that might be over extracting and under extracting, and removing those for more balance. I'm not doing that. Uh, it didn't show to be as much of a a, a problem with my particular brew. So uh, there are a lot of great brewers. There's going to be a lot of talent and a lot of people doing, you know, everything. I just I'm really I'm really happy with this routine. Um, my one of my coaches is like he's like dude you have this so I'm trying to I don't really know what where to keep my mind space I'm trying to just focus on the competition not too much to where I'm throwing everything else out the window but also not trying to let anything else kind of come in and distract he was actually mad that I was recording this podcast he's like are you serious you know what you could be doing and you're recording a podcast about chocolate okay sure I mean if you don't want to win that's fine but
1: I but mean, you know he was giving was me good, so a hard time. That's so funny because you're like, I'm trying to really keep it like focused on. I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. We just did a podcast. But um, you know what, though? I feel like from what I hear you say, you've already won because you are really happy with your routine. You have you brought together the small bean and the, the larger beans and you, you feel like you're totally prepared. And I, I think you mentioned last time that you're using an unusual bean that is not so commonly used. And so it's not necessarily the one that is like a slam dunk it's it's an unusual right so but the fact that you're speaking about it the way you are and that you feel totally prepared and actually my response to your (laughs) your guy would be like the fact that you can be present in the podcast and do a podcast shows that you have done your work you're ready for this right as long as you keep a cool head and you go in and you know pull it off the way that you've been preparing then you've won already regardless of the outcome
0: and I say this yet yeah, the the run through I did this morning right before jumping on the podcast I knocked one of the brews over so that was great.
1: <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> Better today. So we'll than see, tomorrow. let's hope. Yeah, let's hope that never happens again. So
1: <laughs> Awesome. Okay, well I look forward to following and seeing what happens and um and then look forward to talking again next week.